Happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes, welcoming sadness and anger at a moment's notice. Happiness is here today and can often be gone today as well. Happiness is not joy. You see, joy is permanent. Joy lessens but never leaves. Joy is the foundation. Joy is the tree with deep and long-lasting roots. And happiness is the fruit which grows and eventually falls from it. We give thanks for the fruit of happiness, but we understand that it's nothing without the foundation of joy. Learn to enjoy your happiness, but understand that it's not permanent. Lean into your joy and embrace its levels. It will never leave you, even in the darkest of times. Message to the minority. And now, misfits, let's get healed. Welcome to The Healing Space, a black and queer mental health podcast geared toward proving there's more than one way to heal. I am your host, Sensei Raven Akundayo. What's up, Misfit Universe? To say that this has been a busy week would be a severe understatement. <laughs> like literally, this past week has been insane, weekend included. Just go, 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 go. So I'm looking for a moment to just be able to, I gather it might be this weekend. Like I'm at a point now where I'm literally having to think ahead. Like when do I get to rest? When is it actually going to happen? (laughs) I don't foresee it in the next 72 hours. So pray for me, misfits. Pray for me. (laughs) This week's guest is artist Daniel Edwards. We discuss his photography project, Black Outlined Blue as well as his company, Black Vine, and much more. As a son of a retired police officer, I myself was interested in conversing with someone of a similar background and seeing how he navigates standing up against police brutality on black and brown bodies while also understanding that not all cops are bad, as our parents are proof. So I look forward to you misfits getting to hear that conversation and all of the things that we discuss. I think you definitely will enjoy it. But first, let's get into weekends. So, as stated, my past week has been extremely busy, and the weekend was no different, as stated. So, we're going to start with Friday morning, (laughs) because, like, quite literally, when I say Friday morning, I mean Friday morning. I was initially going to say Thursday night, but I realized that I went to see Avengers Endgame uh, at a 12.45 a.m. showing, so it actually was Friday morning. (laughs) And leaving out of the theater at 4 a.m. proved it to me. Yes, you heard right. For those of you who may not be into uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this film was three hours and two minutes. So we walked in at 12.45 and literally on the dot, we were leaving out at 4 a.m. Yeah, it was it was real. It was very, very real. (laughs) But the movie itself was amazing. And this is spoiler free. So like a lot of reviews that I've watched, it's kind of difficult to actually let you guys know how great the movie was without spoiling anything. 
So I almost feel like I need to stop at the movie was good. <laughs> what I will say is that for me personally, there were several moments that I felt, and I've been saying boring. I just, I guess I feel like maybe they could have cut particular scenes out that they weren't necessarily needed or should have been at least been shortened, shortened. Not necessarily they should cut it out completely, but maybe they should just shorten it. So one of those scenes took place in a diner and I'll just leave it at that. Again, this is spoiler free. But for those who have actually seen the movie, the thing is, is that this diner scene, a particular part of the diner scene, just goes on for way too long. Like, I'm like, okay, you've made your point. We get it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> let's, let's keep it pushing. Um, so situations like that, it felt like, and in moments like that, I'm like, okay, you're attempting to fill up these three hours. But that's small compared to how great the rest of the movie was. You know, um, I, I appreciated the way that it was paced. There were moments where, you know, it was slower. There wasn't a lot of action, but they were explaining a storyline, you know. And so because of that, I really appreciated it. What I will say again, no spoilers, is that the third hour is fu-freaking-nominal. Like, I don't think I have ever screamed and yelled so much in a movie. And the funny thing is, is that I was in a theater with actually, you know, like the, the audience members were very respectful. Um, there was laughter and things of that nature. But for the first time in my life, I was the loudest person in a theater. Like, <laughs> I was audible. So <laughs> I'm thinking back to just different parts of that third hour. And I couldn't help it. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you understand. If you haven't seen the movie, you will once you see it. Go see Endgame. It's like making history all over the place. So you definitely want to see this movie. Uh, I needed to see it Friday morning because I didn't need anything messed up for me. And I knew that I couldn't trust that people wouldn't spoil it. Now, the funny thing is, I actually haven't seen a lot of spoilers. And that's kudos to people. However, I think that it would be impossible at this point to not have somebody mess it up for you because even though I haven't heard anybody uh, mention it around me, I haven't seen any postings on social media, there are lots of YouTube videos talking about it <laughs> and not everyone is uh, cautious of the thumbnails that they put up. So I'm very happy that I saw the movie because even the slightest things, it's for, even as far as a different look of a superhero, some people aren't mindful of that. And some people may look forward to that. Some people may not want you to ruin a new look of someone. So it's like even seeing that as the thumbnail can kind of ruin it for people. So I'm just like, leave it alone altogether, everyone. But yeah, make sure you go and you see Endgame. You definitely, I personally think, will enjoy it. Uh, if you are a Marvel fan, then there's no way that the film is going to be long for you. It did not feel like three hours for me. However, if you're not a Marvel fan, there's a possibility that during some of those slower moments, you may feel like you need to, uh, you know, leave. I don't know. Or fall asleep. Uh, for me, everyone was, you know, there's been a big thing of when can you go to the bathroom? I'm like, did they make this big a deal about Avatar? Did they make this big a deal about uh, Titanic? Like, was this whole bathroom using a thing? For me, I make sure I use the bathroom ahead of time. I don't walk out of movies for for nothing. It's not happening. Hunger, needing to pee, no. Once I'm in there, I'm in there. Because if I miss anything, I'm going to have an attitude. So I think the only time I've done that when I went to see uh, Spider-Man Homecoming for the second time, I was like, well, I've seen this already. So going to pee is no big deal. <laughs> but otherwise, it's not happening. 
Okay, next is the Gotham series finale. So that took place this past week as well. And I felt bad for it because I'm like with Endgame coming out. Endgame literally came out the day of the finale of Gotham. So I don't even know what the ratings were, but I'm fairly certain it was pretty low. Uh, and Thursday is usually a night of really good TV. So unfortunate. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is none of uh, Shondaland, like none of uh, Shonda Rhyme shows Grey's Anatomy, uh, For the People, Station 19, none of them came on. So clearly Shonda understood. She's <laughs> like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm sure there was another reason, something that probably came on ABC, but it was still smart of them, especially because Disney owns ABC. So they were like, no, none of our popular shows are going to run up against an, our, our huge movie. So that's not happening. Gotham didn't get that message, unfortunately. So they ended up uh, having their series finale. And I came into Gotham, I think, three seasons in. I initially attempted to start at the beginning. Like when it first started, I actually was watching, but it was up against too much good TV. So I was like, this isn't going to happen. And I just fell off. And so I finally came back, I think, I think it was the third season, third or fourth, it may have been fourth, because did they have six seasons? Was it six seasons? How many seasons of Gotham was there? Um, all I know is that I came in pretty late, but thanks to Hulu, I was able to, or was it Netflix? I think it was Netflix. Thanks to Netflix, I was able to catch up, and I really, really enjoyed the show. I really did. Uh, I think they did a good job with closing out the series finale. What I will say is that it should have been two hours. It honestly should have been. One hour felt like they attempted to stuff a whole lot into a series finale that deserved far more. And I'm I, even with this, I'm doing my best to not give away too much. I know people probably care less when it comes to this. So I don't mind mentioning, you know, you finally get to see... Uh, the Joker Joker, of which, to be honest, I feel like they did a much better job in his other, his, the other versions of him, you know, uh, as Jeremiah was slowly getting to the point of being the Joker. Um, when it actually got to the point where it was like finally the actual Joker, no, it, it and, and again, maybe two hours, you needed two hours because this version of the Joker the other versions were so much better. You're kind of looking at the uh, the creators of the show and like, what made you decide to do this in the very end? Like, he seemed like an interesting mix of the Joker and Solomon Grundy at the very end, <laughs> to be honest with you. And we'd already seen Solomon earlier in um earlier in the show, but uh, but yeah, it it felt it felt like they were looking to tie everything up, honestly. And I think that's the only thing I was disappointed in was that it just seemed like it was really rushed and that was weird but otherwise it was good you know I, i've seen far worse series finales far worse far worse to shows that i loved a whole lot more than gotham so if that being said no kudos to them and it's a show that i definitely would watch all over again starting from the beginning so if you haven't seen gotham i would say do it i think that it was a really good show so there we go and last for Culture of Pop, wow, I just realized I went into Culture of Pop and I was supposed to be talking about my weekend. <laughs> wow, I guess we'll do that the other way around. I got to the very last thing for Culture of Pop and I'm looking at my notes like, oh, wow, you started talking about Endgame and completely forgot that you were talking about your weekend. 
Alrighty, so Culture of Pop will go before weekends this <laughs> this week. <laughs> wow. Okay, bear with me, Misfits. So anyway, the last part of Culture of Pop would be John Singleton, who passed away this week. And uh, our brother ended up going into a coma, which was brought on by hypertension. And his family made a decision at the top of the week that they were going to take him off of life support. And uh, he passed on. And the first movie that I saw, again, <laughs> definitely showing my age, but you know, we're proud of walking toward 40. Um, <laughs> I actually saw Boys in the Hood in theaters. And I know good and well I was way too young to be in there. So I'm sitting here now like, who took me to this movie? Because that was, oh God, how, why was I in that theater? Anyway, um, <laughs> the scene with Morris Chestnut being shot and killed like haunted me for a minute. It really did. And I'm like, even at that age, was like, should I be seeing this? <laughs> that was a that was a lot, that was a lot. But that that, and I'm sitting here now looking at John Singleton like you tried to traumatize me a lot when I was younger. In higher learning, if you've never seen the movie before, forgive me because this actually will be a spoiler, I guess. But there's a scene toward the end where Tyra Banks uh, dies, and to this day, it is the most uncomfortable death scene I have ever witnessed. I don't know if any of you misfits out there agree with me, but it was, oh, it was horrible. It was so horrible. Like, I, I think back to the fact that I've never seen that movie again. I watched it once in its entirety, and there was one time I, I was switching stations, and it was on, and it was at her death scene, and I couldn't switch stations fast enough. It's so uncomfortable. And like, why would you have someone talking like this in the middle of their death, like screaming and oh God, it makes my skin crawl. Anyway, <laughs> John Singleton has done a lot of great things in cinema. He really has. And uh, I believe that there, I believe that he's still on record as the youngest person to ever be nominated for an Oscar as director, I believe. And I think he was 24 years old. Uh, I could be wrong. He may not be the youngest anymore, but I believe that he still holds that record. Poetic Justice, of course, was a masterpiece that I myself didn't really get when I was younger. Uh, as I got older and watched it, it made a whole lot more sense. Of course, it had two of my favorites in there, Janet and um, Janet and Tupac. And yeah, it was, phew, I just think about that soundtrack. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of those movies where once I was older, it made a lot more sense to me. Um, of course, we can go on, we can go on. Uh, but peace to his spirit. And my prayers are with his family, you know, greatness. And I pray that his legacy lives on. And I believe that it does. It believes, I mean, it, it, it continues on in the Jordan Peels and the Ryan Coogler's of this world. So definitely love and light to the memory of John Singleton. All right. So let's quickly go ahead and get into the weekends in this reverse version of <laughs> the, the top of the show. So I talked about going to see Endgame early on Friday morning. Later in the day, I actually was uh, I was uh, blessed to be able to go to the exhibition of our guest for this episode. Daniel Edwards, which is Black Outline Blue. I mentioned that earlier. And it was great to be there to support a good friend, you know, to be in that space and uh, to see him navigate it with everyone came, who came there to show love and to show support. 
and to take in his art, you know, to take in this this creation that he birthed. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really had uh, a good time there. And I'm proud of him. And I'm happy that he was able to put that out into the universe for everyone to take in. And not going to say too much because I look forward to you guys being able to hear the interview and learning even more about Black Outlined Blue and all things Daniel Edwards. So that was Friday. Saturday, I went to my city for the month. Again, for any of you misfits who are listening to the podcast for the first time, or you've missed all of the episodes so far in 2019, <laughs> I talk about how I have a, uh, a city that I go to every month. It's something that I decided as I make my march toward 40. I wanted some very significant things about the 39th year leading up to 40. So this, uh, this week, this month, excuse me, uh, I made my way to Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham was so much better than I expected. Like me being a northerner for so many different cities. I'm like, it's the South. I can only imagine how dry and boring this is going to be. Uh, Even if it's a major city, you know, I still imagine that compared to, you know, New York and Baltimore and D.C. and everything that it's not really going to hit it for me. But and I think the weather contributed greatly. Like it was a beautiful day in Birmingham like absolutely beautiful and that contributed a lot you know the very first place that I went and you know my my, my road dog my my uh, my friend who's always with me for the majority of my trips Tay uh he went with me and when we first got there we went to the Civil Rights Institute and that was really cool with the exception of the black Israelites standing outside yelling a bunch of nonsense the entire time, the experience was actually pretty awesome. Uh, you know, being being told, not directly, of course, because they weren't talking directly to us, but overhearing them speak of all of these things of, uh, you know, how it's an abomination to be gay and all of these other things against pretty much everyone who isn't a cis-hetero black man. Uh, well, that was that was sad. But but the institute itself was was great, actually, quite expansive, which I didn't expect. You know, we we walked around for quite some time and I was like, this is awesome. The amount of history and as often happens in situations like this, there was a certain amount of anger that arose in me. But it's only because I sit here and I think to myself, the world that we still live in and the way that black and brown bodies are still treated even today and the fact that younger generations will be able to go to museums and still see unfortunately situations like what we saw and you know they they can look back at freddie gray and trayvon martin and just all of these situations where they're like wow that was still happening then and we go all the way back to the you know the 50s and 60s and see what took place and i also reminded myself that I am only one generation removed from segregation. And I remind myself of that every now and then just to make sure that I'm grounded in the reality of how how close I am to all of the things that I didn't have that I have today. The things that my mother had to endure, knowing that my mother lived through a time where we couldn't go to certain um, water fountains, you know? My mother existed during a time where you had to sit at the back of the bus. Like, it's mind-blowing to know that my mother lived during that period, and I'm only one generation removed from it. 
it's it's definitely something that makes you pause for a moment and understand where we still exist in this fight speaking of which after that we went directly across the street to the 16th street baptist church and we watched a film on the four young ladies and i found out that there were actually two uh two young men who died on the exact same day which so far everyone who i've shared that with they're like i did not know that that was a thing and i'm like yeah they they lost their lives as well and that was really powerful for me you know because I'm sitting there like we, and of course these these young sisters' names need to be told, of course, but why is it that we've never heard of these two young brothers as well, you know? Uh, and just really quickly, one of them, um, his name was Virgil Ware, and he was 13 years old at the time. He ended up being shot off of his bike, He well, his brother's bike. He was riding on the handlebars of his brother's bike, and they were going down the street, a car with two young white boys who were coming from a Klan rally were coming in the opposite direction. And for no reason, literally no reason whatsoever, one of them pulled out a pistol and shot Virgil off of the, bar, um, the, the bicycle and he died. Again, keep in mind that this was literally the exact same day as the bombing of the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church. And then the other one was a uh, 16-year-old Johnny Robinson. And so he and his friends were playing with rocks. They were throwing rocks at a car and a police officer ended up seeing them do this. And he decided that he was going to pull out his pistol when he saw them throwing rocks at the car and he shoots him and kills Johnny Robinson. Yeah, throwing rocks at a car. Your life is worth that. You're throwing rocks at a car. I shoot you. I kill you. So you think about these two young men who died on the exact same day as these four beautiful young sisters. Six lives. Six lives that were lost for no reason, no good reason. And you think to where we are now. And sadly, the fact that I could, everything that you just heard, I could tell you these exact same stories in 2019 and no one would blink. Everyone would say, yeah, I can believe that this would take place in 2019. What's the problem? Generations after generations have been born since then. And yet the same things are still happening. The same things are still happening. Wake up. The fight continues. The fight absolutely continues. So yeah, um, we came up out of that. Because <laughs> that, was, that was pretty heavy. And Tay actually ended up introducing me to a spot called Whataburger. I'd never been there before. So we grabbed a quick bite there to eat. And then we made our way to a mall. I think it was called the Galleria or something like that. And we ended up going shopping. And that was really cool. Then we left there and we went somewhere else. Like we just kept going to places. One of the things I loved about Birmingham is that we literally just kept knocking out places. Here, 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 here. I love that. And we ended it at a spot called The Summit. Which... I, of course, you guys are listening to this all over the world, so I don't really know how to explain what it looks like, but um, I don't know. For those who are in Baltimore who are listening to this right now, I would say that the summit was kind of like if you combined Owings Mills and its heyday with White Marsh, you know, if you combine the two of those together. And uh, it was it was nice. It was a really, really nice neighborhood. I liked it a lot, of which everyone who told me about the summit ahead of time told me I would really enjoy it. And I did. It was just really beautiful. A lot of really nice shops. Again, it was a beautiful day there. 
So everywhere we went, you know, like when we went to Whataburger, it actually sat on top of this hill, kind of overlooking like different hotels and stuff. And all you saw, uh, you know, out, out of, as you looked out onto the land was like just trees and grass and the sun was shining down. It was so beautiful. Like, oh, I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> and most of my trips are usually just for a day. Um, next month is going to be my first time going to two different locations and actually staying longer than just for a day. But yeah, that's all I needed. That's all I needed was that day. It was a lot of fun. Birmingham was really, really awesome. And I rank Birmingham now. I believe that it in Chattanooga would probably be at the top fighting for number one as far as the cities that I've been to so far. I really enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, have, if you have an opportunity, make sure you check it out. There's a lot of history that's there as well as a lot of really cool stuff to do too. Um, <laughs> I was talking to one of my coworkers and he was like, cause he's from there and he was like, so you got to enjoy magic city. I was like, well, thanks to the civil rights Institute, I actually found out that the name of it is also tragic city. And I don't know, <laughs> I'm not sure which one I want to lean into more, but, uh, you know, <laughs> of course he side eyed me, but, uh, yeah. So that's the end. That's your culture of pop and that's your weekend as well. So we're going to now make our way into my interview with Daniel Edwards. And uh, I'll see you guys on the other side. The Healing Space loves hearing from our Misfit universe. And there's so many different ways for you to reach out to us and let us know that we're helping in your healing. First, you can go to our official website, which is thspodcast.com. There you can leave comments as well as like any of our past episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook under thspodcast and on Twitter at underscore thspodcast. You can also subscribe, repost, retweet, and comment across all social media. You can also walk with me all over social media under the exact same name, Scorpiogi, everywhere. If you're interested in any yoga, massage therapy, stretch therapy, meditation, life coaching, the list is endless. <laughs> you can reach me all over social media under Scorpiogi. Yogi. And if you really want to get fancy with it, you can also email us at ths at revolutionmultimedia.com. That's ths at r-a-v-o-l-u-t-i-o-n multimedia.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome to the Healing Space, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you, Raven. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so what's good with you? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, <laughs> things are finally leveling out in life. So It's been very serious for you recently. Yeah. Very, very serious. <laughs> yeah, all good things, of course. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Working towards something great. Mm -hmm. So uh, have you taken a moment to actually exhale yet? Or? Shoddy. Barely. <laughs> Barely, but yeah, today was kind of the beginning of that. Good. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what's up. So I want to introduce you to the Misfits, but I figure what better way? And by the way, the Misfits are the listeners of the podcast. But I figure hey, what, <laughs> what what better way than to have you introduce yourself? So if you could tell the Misfit universe a little bit about you. Uh, my name is Daniel Edwards. I have been living in Atlanta. This fall will be 12 years. Um, came here for undergrad when I was 18 and haven't left yet. Um, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a scientist. 
you know, friend, brother, all of the good things of life. Um, yeah. And I'm open for questions. <laughs> more, more so than just kind of like, you right. know, here's my life mm-hmm. in 30 seconds. But, yeah. So what does being an artist mean for you? Being an artist for me means putting something out in the world that will hopefully be benefit of benefit to others. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And how did or when did or both? Uh, photography show up for you I wanted to be a photographer when I was 12 for my 13th birthday my mom got me my first camera which I recently like rediscovered never got rid of it I just packed it away oh, that's awesome. um, okay. and I found it again and so I've been using it um, for like personal stuff yeah like taking it to events and I had it <laughs> I had it at Emily King's concert the last time she was here mm-hmm. and this thing just had has a very aggressive flash (laughs) and it you know it takes it uses film so i had color film and you know i I pull out this camera during the concert and the flash is going (laughs) there with my sister and we're just cracking up at this like ridiculous camera did it catch anybody off guard everybody Everybody, it's brighter. It was brighter than this like stadium lights. Like yes. it was brighter than everything <laughs> happening. This this like ridiculous strobe. I'm right? surprised in the middle of her performance she didn't turn around. Yo, like, like <laughs> that would have been so funny. Um, like what's going on? For yeah, so photography photography has kind of been in my life off and on since yeah. then. Um, after getting out of grade school, going to college, I ended up taking a different route. And then picked photography back up on my way out of undergrad. Okay. And then that kind of like laid the foundation for where I'm at now with the work and, you know, what it means for me to be a photographer is more than just taking pictures of beautiful things. Like I I apply it as my medium to my work as a sociologist Mm -hmm. um, with that instead of or in addition to writing, you know, about the world. Um, we're a visual culture and this for me made the most sense and was also fulfilling uh, when it came to you know talking about and showing the world you know the life you know aspects of life so um, yeah what are some of the most important lessons you've learned so far as far as your photography take your time Mm mm-hmm Uh, J. Cole, one of my favorite songs is uh, Crooked Smile by J. Cole. And he has a line at the beginning of the song that said, we may not be picture perfect, but we're worth the picture still. And I think that that is at the core of like my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned to be myself and to let that ride out in my photography and what I do. Nice. Because there's nothing wrong with me. So there isn't going to be really anything wrong with what I make per se. Speak. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, those are the things that I've learned. So, who are some of your inspirations as far as photography goes? Gordon Parks, Fazal Sheik, um, Deborah Willis. Who else? Dawood Bay. Absolutely. Um, Chester Higgins, to name a few. Yeah. Uh, also, Timothy Greenfield Sanders, who did The Blacklist, mm-hmm. um, who I met. And like a long time ago, um, when that was a fantastic 
like encounter like an experience so um as far as institutions go um new york times lens blog particularly their one in eight million series of work Mm -hmm. is definitely at the core of my storytelling when it comes to photography so yeah those are those are definitely my inspirations okay are there any moments as far as being a photographer and it doesn't have to go in like order of you know greatest to anything even if there's just one is there anything that really stands out to you so far in your career as far as being a really important moment for your photography when new york times said that they wanted to see me in my work mm. <laughs> I think that was kind of the beginning of it yeah um yeah i i had gotten accepted to the new york times portfolio review and so i ended up traveling to new york um to be a part of that yeah and to be in a room of other phenomenal like fantastic photographers mm-hmm. a lot of which were like people of color yeah like black people and yeah. other black men was fantastic i bet that was great and then all of the connections and people that i met during that time like was really really good um what did being in that energy do for you it definitely validated my place at the table mm. It definitely validated my place at the table, especially to have these reviewers who see countless images and see countless bodies of work um, on a daily basis, you know, let alone their entire career for some of them to say that I was the best work that they had seen that day. You know, it's like there's (laughs) nothing. Yeah, there was there was. There's very little that could be more affirming than that. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I think my mom seeing my work. And seeing it finished and polished and on the walls twice. Yeah. Um, my most recent exhibition was my thesis exhibition this past, this last Friday. Um, and my mom was able to come for the opening. Yeah. The last time I exhibited this work was I did it on my own. It was my first solo show. Um, and she made it for the closing. And so it was like really, it was really affirming for her to see it uh, grow. Yeah. Because what I produced this last time was really different. Um, and I think of a higher caliber than what I had produced, which was still really good the first time. Like, but it just got better. Yeah. It's gotten better. Uh, those, those two moments definitely stand out for me. Okay. So going back to what you said earlier as far as having a seat at the table. At that table, you're not just seated as Daniel all by yourself. You have Black Vine. So if you would, could you please explain to the Misfit Universe exactly how you birthed Black Vine? Um, Black Vine came out of this journey of, out of undergrad, I created a um, like media consulting business production company. Um, and so it started off with, it was, you know, my name it was Daniel Davis Edwards Productions, right? Um, and so I did a lot of work in the field, a lot of freelance stuff. Um, and I learned a lot about the things that I didn't want to do Mm -hmm. as a photographer. And so narrowing all of that stuff down and inevitably going back to grad school, um, my goal, ultimate goal is to teach photography, um, and to be in the place of mentorship or support that I didn't necessarily have like right out of the gate when yeah, I wanted yeah. to be a photographer in grade school. Absolutely. Um, and that's what Black Vine is. So Black Vine is a platform for socially engaged art mm. um, and socially engaged artists. So there is there is two entities. So there's the Black Vine 
you know, LLC, which is like the for-profit section, and then Black Mind Foundation, which is nonprofit that would, you know, bring in bring in monies and fundraise and stuff to support artists in their work. Right. And the only real stipulation for the work is that it has to be socially engaged. Mm-hmm. And essentially what that means is that someone hopefully should be able to know more or walk away from your work having been changed and seeing the world differently as a result of engaging with whatever you've created. Yeah. Um, and leaving leaving a mark, you know. And so that's what Black Vine is. The, the name is, because I'm such a nerd, the name <laughs> um, is a compilation of two different things. So Black Vine, V-I-N-E, um, is actually this phrase or like, this fictional underground network of communication that was coined in um, a Captain America comic book. Okay. Um, it was Captain <laughs> America Truth. So they were essentially the powers that be in this book were talking about an underground network of communication amongst black people, yeah. and people of color, like specifically black people that they couldn't infiltrate. And so, um, and then, so my spelling of it is V-I-G-N, yeah. um, which is short for vignette. So I combine these two things. So on one hand, we're talking about a, we're talking about stories that are compiled within cultures and compiled within marginalized cultures mm-hmm. that unless folks within that culture or folks within these boundaries talk about their stories or yeah. share their stories, they're not going to be known by the everyday world. Right. And then the type of work I like to produce are these kind of short, digestible things that may be heavy and have a lot of impact, and you can get a lot from them without having to to overly engage with them, per se. Right. And so that was Black Vine. Um, sharing stories that wouldn't otherwise be heard in ways that are easy to, to access. Yeah. Now, easy, easier to access. Um, and then creating a platform for other artists to be able to create their work free and clear. Yeah. You know, so that's what I've been working on and that's what I've been doing um, now that I've gotten, you know, going through grad school and stuff. So the strategy is to kind of build my own base as a photographer and, you know, as a, a person in the field. Um, and it's all happening under Black Vine. So, like, as people see me and see see my work mm-hmm. they're also seeing black vine attached to it and right. the inevitable question is okay what is this yeah and so i'm trying to grow it as i grow so is black vine pretty much in its infancy right now you'd yeah. say okay yeah very much so and i'm okay with that yeah absolutely um because again as i grow it grows absolutely um and i'm not done so indeed it's not done <laughs> so yeah indeed that's what black vine is well i was honored to uh be in the place to be this past weekend uh, as you uh, well I guess it wouldn't be considered giving birth because you'd actually showed it before correct mm-hmm. uh, well I was I wasn't there the first time <laughs> it was so it was I, still definitely a labor of love absolutely like it wasn't, you know I can I'm be not sure underestimate like yeah. whether the work I was creating it from the ground up or not there was still a lot of things that I had to do from definitely from the ground up yeah <laughs> having conversations with you yeah. <laughs> and the and the late nights that you were up putting in the work i can definitely attest to the fact that that took place uh, but i wanted you to talk to the misfit universe about, about black outline blue and what this experience has been like for you the work that i've witnessed you putting in uh, as well as how you came about with the idea of doing it in the first place um So Black Outline Blue was birthed from two opposing, you know, emotions. So 
one, you know, out of love and out of hate. So mm-hmm. I saw Philando Castile um, get killed in his car. I saw the footage of that, like on CNN news one morning, like I was getting ready to go to class um, and realized that I had developed this fuck the police mentality, like over time that I had just really come to the surface after seeing that footage and, and seeing him get killed in front of his partner, in front of his child, like, and what and what seemed to be really senseless and i was frustrated and i was frustrated because my parents are both cops and they're both good people and i was able to see what policing should have looked like or should look like by by their example right and so like just added adds to my frustration um with you know the shooting of unarmed mm-hmm. civilians you know b- police brutality and stuff because like it doesn't it shouldn't and it doesn't have to be right. like that way um so like there was this hate for the police but then there's also this love for my parents and it's like well i need to figure this out i need to reconcile this blackout line blue was i went into that as like a one-off project for one for one of my craft classes yeah you know i had just had my just put my hands on a large format camera so i'm learning how to use this like massive like old workhorse piece of machinery to you know take pictures using film right. black and white film and so i was like this was going to be my final project i asked my friend um eric who is a police officer um to like be my guinea pig we're trying to figure out this project um and, and essentially what i came what i came up with was a question it was like i wanted to investigate the duality of identities of of what it means to be a black person in America today and what it means to be a police officer at the same time. Yeah. And why a black person today or why a black person, period, will yeah. want to be a cop. And so I started with my parents. I asked them about their careers, why they wanted to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and in that talking to them about the project and what I was what I want to do, like we between the conversations, the two conversations with my parents um, came the interview questions that I asked that I've asked every officer in some form, um, the visual, you know, concepts for it all, um, you know, why they're in black and white, why they are diptychs, why I like all of these things came out of these conversations with my parents. Yeah. And so they are very much at the core of this work along with my need for therapy and trying to figure out my own stuff Yeah. when it came to, you know, policing, um and and this you know aspect of life right and so since then it has taken legs and it's taken me places and it's had my name in rooms that i've yet to be in mm-hmm. and all of these different things have happened from this project that you know was gonna be you know a one deal thing and right. it turned out to be something else completely different and i'm happy about that um but because i didn't go into it with that with that expectation um, I think allows me to still look at the project as it, as accessible, yeah, um, and as a thing that can continue on um, without that expectation of you know is somebody gonna like this mm-hmm. or is someone going to have a problem with this or you know any any of those things. Right. It's just I'm just creating. I'm still working like and that's where the scientist in me kicks in mm-hmm. like in and wanting to like collect information and data and you know qualitative information and wanting to hear the answers different answers to the same question over and over to see what comes out what are the commonalities like what are the things that that reign true 
for like any black person that is a police officer. Yeah. Um, and so that keeps me going too and wanting to like find an answer and get different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and also building this network of trust. So every officer that's a part of the project happened by way of word of mouth. So I'm trusting the word of the officer that came before them for the one that is in front of me. Because now I'm now I'm photographing officers that I don't know. They're complete strangers. Yeah. Um, until I get to know them more. So but in that we are learning to trust each other fairly quickly because they're in front of my camera and it's like, well, I saw what the effect of this was for my friend or for the person I recommended me. And so I'm trusting, you know, you as a photographer for me to stand here and be your subject. I'm trusting that they are actually about their shit as police officers and they're in it for the culture and in it for the community, you know, um, you know, by word of the person that recommended them. Right. So, uh, and so far, so good. The goal ultimately is to photograph officers in different cities and mm-hmm. to make this project as big as possible to make books um, and kind of get the word out. Right now, the thing that people see most readily are the are the images, but what isn't as accessible are their words. Because yeah. I, I interviewed every officer. Um, not everybody has been able to like get the full breadth of everything that they have to say. Right. Um, and that's hopefully where the book will come into play. And then, of course, having the, the transcribed interviews and stuff on my website. So, um, yeah. That's where I'm at with that. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask, as someone who also has a parent, uh, my mother uh, is a retired officer, and my sister is actually still an officer now, I wanted to ask, what has conversations been like for you when speaking with people, I guess, on both sides of things? Those who are more so, you know, it's all about uh, standing up for Blue Lives Matters, you know, those who say Black Lives Matter, and as someone who was raised in a household who had two parents who are police officers, what are those conversations like for you when people specifically, when people attempt to get you to be on one side and not understanding that you can have feelings for both? You can understand that your parents were good people, you know, Mm -hmm. and that they did do their job appropriately, but you do understand what happens in our communities as black people, Uh, people who try to kind of push against that. What is your response? Um, Well, you kind of just said the answer. the, The thing about my project is really bringing to the forefront that the mind can hold two seemingly opposing ideas in the same body, mm-hmm. you know? So I can, on one hand, recognize the system for what it is and recognize its impact on a wide scale culturally, you know, when right. it comes to policing and black people, right? I, can, I get that. And a person is well with historically, a person is well within their rights to stop right there. Yeah. And not give a damn about the police. Right. Or give a damn about the system at all. Right. You are a person is well within their rights to do that. Um, I choose to look at those officers that are in it now um, with the purpose of helping other people and also tipping the scales in a different way, like trying to tip the scales in a more positive manner to create a new history. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's ultimately what I'm choosing to do. Uh, all the while still very critically scrutinizing the system itself. Yeah. Because at its core, the base of it was not something that is for the people. That's not something for the 99%. It was, it was something for 
the political and economically elite to protect their assets from everyone else. Yeah. You know, or to stay in power in some form. Hiring your homeboys to rally votes in the community for you to yeah. stay in office or in the and that's in the north. Mm-hmm. Like businesses, um, hiring, you know, elevating certain elevating certain people, their homeboys and stuff. Uh, to protect their assets against in their employees that they were mistreating in the South, it was gathering up slaves to return them to the plantation. After slavery's over, it's the implementation of Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. Like you know, a person is well within their rights, no matter where you live. You know, you, no matter where your ilk, you know, is based in anywhere yeah. in the country, to not give a fuck about the police. However, comma. Mm-hmm. The officers that are featured in my project are in a long line of specifically black officers yeah. who have recognized the, the detriment of the system, went into the system, and have been working for a different outcome because they know they know what it's they know what the, the potential issues are if they don't. Yeah. If they don't step up, if they don't follow their calling in this really specific way. Um, and that's been a part of my research. Like I've been, I've been learning a lot about the first black officers, a lot of which happened in the South, surprisingly, yeah. like <laughs> in Selma, <clears throat> Alabama, in New Orleans, mm. and like in these places where it's like, what? Yeah, black folk been leading it, running it. Come on, and you know, championing this change and this charge to for specifically like, and and because I'm only talking about policing, like you know, black people, we have a history of of you know coming in and like fucking shit up for the good you know but like in this context we're talking about we're talking about these officers um coming in and championing what we what we now look at as a concept of protect and serve yeah that was not there in the inception of policing in this country but became that because people you know right-minded people wanted wanted this to happen and yeah. they worked for it to happen and so like the whole concept of that of protect and serve and community-centered policing and all that is still is relatively new compared compared to the to the history yeah um but like it's been a, it's been black people that have been like leading that yeah um and it, and it, it should come as no surprise like not at all <laughs> like hope you we would hope that being marginalized or being oppressed in any form once you get once you get access to the to the system or the entity that was you know oppressing you yeah you don't turn around and do the same thing yeah that, like, is, the that is the hope that is the hope yes but zora neale hurston who is also a part of my research said all my skin folk ain't my kin folk facts and that is also that is also the the boundary and the barrier for my project yeah right so just because you are black does not mean you are welcome mm-hmm. with this. Like, you got to be vetted. Yeah. You got to be validated. Like, it's not, it's not an all access and all open pass. Yeah. And it's the same thing for white officers. This project isn't about white officers. Yeah. My yeah. parents aren't white. I'm not talking about that aspect of policing because this would be a very different project. Very. It would be a very different story. <laughs> very. You know, so, <laughs> like... That's all it. That's all a part of it. And so like this this network of trust that is happening by word of mouth. Yeah. Because these are people who quite literally 
will trust this other person with their life mm -hmm. and are trusting the lives of the community in their hands to you, like, is immensely important to me. Um, what was it like building, I guess you would say, relationships with these people? Because they're, they're going to be providing you with, you know, some in-depth information. Mm -hmm. So what was it like building in a short period of time these relationships with people to get them to open up for you? Well, that's the fun part. That's definitely the fun part. And um, that taps to a, into a skill that I've always had. And that's like building connections yeah, and building genuine connections, um, whether they lasted a month, two months, years, whatever, like it lasts for as long as it's meant to because mm -hmm. it's genuine and it, you know, it, it does what it needs to do. Yeah. Right. Um, and so one aspect of building that connection is uh, the location of the portraits. So whenever I, you know, I'm engaged with a new officer, it generally happens over the phone, over a text message. And so I'm telling them about the project, um, being available for any questions. But one question that always comes up is where are we going to photograph? Where are yeah. we going to take the portraits? And I tell each officer, like, that's up to you. Um, I want them, I say, think about a place that has defined policing for you. Um, something where something happened there or where, you know, you whatever, however you define yeah. that, right? Um, and that's where we're going to take your portrait. And when we get there, when I'm setting up the camera and like in doing like introducing myself and meeting them in person for the first time, mm -hmm. I ask them, why are we here? Like, why are we at this location? Yeah. And it is a, a great icebreaker. And it's a great way of connecting mm -hmm. um, because these are the things inevitably that a person engaging with a project is going to get to know. Yeah. They're going to know that. Um, and they're going to know why, like, and each location is different. No officer has picked the same location. Um, and so that that's powerful, too. Like, as I get more and more officers a part of the project, you have them, one, in alignment with their job duties and whatever district that they are assigned to. But then they are also they are also specifically attached to a particular spot in the city. Yeah. And so like, you know, for me that just reinforces the trust and reinforces like my sense of reliability in them. Mm -hmm. um, and I want that to grow. I want that to grow. So creating those connections with them has been really important. Um, and for the most part, pretty easy. Okay. Real recognize real. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, how long is the exhibit going to be up and where can the misfits find it? So you can find the exhibition at the Narvi J. Harris Museum of Art. Um, it is a part of Wheat Street Baptist uh, Education Center that's uh, currently being revamped to become more of an art space. Um, and the work will be up until June 1st, until the day I graduate. Nice. OK. And if people want to support, what can they do? Um, if you want to support... Follow on Instagram um, at Blackvine, um, that's V-I-G-N, and also support via the website, um, post, comment about the work. Um, if you feel like you are trustworthy and you know other trustworthy officers, especially outside of the city of Atlanta, um, that's important, you know, to come in and, and bring that information. Donate, mm -hmm. you know. Um, because if I get a lead for officers and stuff outside of the state, I got to be able to travel there. Yeah. You know, and still live. 
Um, I'm not quite a starving artist, but you know, I ain't rolling in it either. Yeah. You know, so that's the support. Put your money where your mouth is, you know, and, and also show up, show up and see and engage and hopefully learn something and take what you learn out into the world. And if I can remember what you said at the exhibition, you stated that you want, you want it to be officers who are actually still. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, active duty officers. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Doesn't matter their age. It actually, it doesn't matter their department either. Yeah. You know, just active duty officers. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> me. You're doing great work. Thank you. All right, Misfits, we'll be right back with good news. And now it is time for good news. So first, I would like to thank all of you misfits for the wonderful feedback that you provided myself and Manny for last week's episode called Live in the Light. It was honestly beautiful. Like seriously, you guys sent us, I mean, not just over social media, but phone calls, text messages. I had some conversations on Marco Polo that really moved me from some of you guys and your feelings, not only as far as our conversation when it came to Nigel, but also in loving the interaction between Manny and myself. Like that is a very dear friend of mine and we connect on a beautiful spiritual level. So we have so much fun together and I'm glad that it comes across so clearly to all of you in the Misfit universe. And the importance of continuing the conversation about suicide as well. And I'm glad that there were points that we made that really spoke out to all of you too. So thank you so much for the feedback. Keep doing it. Like I love when you guys reach out to us or reach out to me and let me know what you think of the podcast. Of course, with my guests, I love when you speak to, to us. But when you hit me up and when you let me know what it is you liked, you know, or even if it's constructive criticism, I just want to hear back from you guys. So lately, you guys have been coming harder with your feedback than you ever have before. And I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank each and every one of you. The more feedback, the better. Okay. So next, Kevin, who you always hear me talk about, Kevin Dwayne, <laughs> one of my dearest, closest, closest friends, as I shared with all of you, is uh, moving on to a new chapter. And now I can actually say exactly what it is. Uh, he's gotten his wings and he's going to now be a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. So the way the universe works, he spoke this and wanted this some time ago. And it finally showed up for him and I could be happier. I'm so serious. And I think the reason why I'm not in a space where I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to miss you so much is because he's a freaking flight attendant. So <laughs> whenever he wants to come back here, he can. So I feel like with the exception of him as my yoga student, because most of that's going to have to happen online now, I'm going to see him as much as I usually would. Like with the exception of seeing him once a week for a yoga class, we didn't hang out all the time. A lot of what we did was over Marco because we both have busy lives, you know? He just always made time for his yoga. So I feel like with him being able to come here whenever he has time off, I'm going to see one of my dearest friends as often as I normally would. And also because of Marco Polo, because of FaceTime, we're going to still be connected, you know? So I'm, I'm less worried about how much I'm going to miss him and more excited for his new chapter. And anyone who knows me knows that I don't get excited about a lot. Um, but I really am genuinely excited about this new chapter for him and all that it holds. So the good news is new chapters are wonderful. 
And uh, yeah, blessings, love, and light to you, my dear friend. I can't wait to see what happens next. And finally, for good news, a brother is finally starting a new book. Listen, you guys don't understand. If we can get, you know, a little less funny and a little deeper for a minute, I have been so removed from reading, it hurts. Like, seriously. And I have missed reading so much. And when I was in Birmingham, I was in Barnes and Noble. And I, first of all, I was so happy when I saw the Barnes and Noble, I went running in. And I'm like, I'm not leaving here until a book speaks to me. Seriously. So I asked for the, um, I asked for the, the customer service person to show me to an area that kind of spoke to wellness. And uh, I said, you know, specifically if there's meditation or something like that. So she took me and I'm walking around and it's like maybe four different aisles of books. And I'm reading, I see different things on yoga and, you know, self-help and all that stuff. And I'm like, nothing is really speaking to me. I picked up a few books, started reading on the inside, and I'm like, for me, if a couple of uh, pages in, I don't feel it, it's not for me. But then I see this book called The Empath Experience, What to Do When You Feel Everything. And it's by Sidney Campos. And I see this book, and first of all, just the cover automatically made me want to read it. But I uh, opened it up, started reading, and I'm like, this is for me. This is absolutely for me. Now, I understand, and I have for several years that I'm an empath, but I also know that I'm clairsentient. But any book that can help me to understand how to navigate it a little bit better, I welcome. Even though I'm someone who educates other people on it, we're constant students in this life. So I wanna learn more, you know? So I'm going to make this finally the first book of the revamped Storytellers Book Club. So if you're listening to this on the day that this podcast actually goes up, it's May 1st. So if you start with me today on May 1st, we will make sure that we have this done and finish by January. Nope, not January 1st. We're not going to wait that long to June 1st. (laughs) So we have an opportunity to talk about it again. You know, this is twice in one episode to talk about being excited, actually twice just in good news. I'm excited about reading this book. I am excited about getting back to reading because there was a point in my life before I moved to Atlanta where I was a a lover of books, you know? Constantly reading, always wanting to find out more, always wanting to get more and more knowledge. And I feel like since I've been here, I've been sucked up so much into Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime and just TV, TV, TV. And I've gotten away from one of my first loves. So I'm ready to get back into it and I can't wait For those of you who will read along with me, for us to really get into this and have some conversations about what we thought of the book. Again, it's called The Empath Experience, What to Do When You Feel Everything. So yeah, that is the end of good news. I would like to thank Daniel Edwards for being here. I enjoyed the conversation thoroughly. I can't wait to see what also happens in his life and the good news that he has to come. And to you all in the Misfit universe, thank you for continuing to listen, for always giving such wonderful feedback and constructive criticism, knowing that I can take it, (laughs) and representing for the Misfit universe, always loving and rising in who you are, and when you don't, seeking the help in order to do so. I do that as well. We are none perfect. 
and we're constantly growing in this beautiful journey that we're on. It's about the experience. So I'm gonna go now and I look forward to the next time that we get to share this space, this healing space. Until then, I love you all. Namaste. Namaste.